0: With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Zing, your host once again for a brand new season of the Women's Prize podcast, coming to you every fortnight throughout 2020. You've joined me for a special bookshelf episode in which we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five brilliant books by women. Now, we're being very responsible. We are heeding the government advice on the coronavirus lockdown and practising social distancing. But through the magic of technology, I am connecting with our guest, who is none other than the illustrious Joanna Trollope. Now, Joanna's been writing for over 45 years. She is well known for her contemporary works of fiction. She studied at Oxford University and worked at the Foreign Office before becoming a full-time writer. And she is the author of Not One, Not Two – not three, but 17 best-selling novels, exploring wide-ranging themes from historical romance to adoption and identity. And her newest book, Mum and Dad, is out now this year. She also writes under the pseudonym, Caroline Harvey, and has been awarded an OBE for services to literature, and her work has been adapted for TV. Joanna, welcome. You're well known for, you know, your contemporary works of fiction. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your childhood, your growing up, your development as a writer. I know you studied at Oxford University, you worked at the foreign office before you became a full-time writer.
1: I, I, I think I've probably written about 30, 35 books in my lifetime, because I had the great good fortune to be published in the days when well, in the olden times, really, when there was no kind of um, need to uh, promote yourself on social media or anything. you—you, you, It was word of mouth stuff. And the bestseller lists were the bestseller lists and they were worth something. So who would you say are the kind of people who
0: picked you up um, when you first became a writer and really talked about your work to
1: others? Well, it, in the 80s, There was something called the sex and shopping blockbuster, which was enormously popular. And that was in a time of great consumerism. And it was um, sex on a white mink bedspread. And most of the paperbacks were hugely fat and had um, embossed lettering on the covers and so on. And I tried to write something. I tried to write the kind of book I wanted to write, and it got absolutely nowhere. And then The Rector's Wife, which was the first one that, you know, it was the fourth book I'd written. And I'd written three before it, which hadn't really got anywhere because of this prevalence of um, consumerism, sort of vulgar consumerism. And then suddenly, in 1992, I think, the rector's wife absolutely hit the button. And it was about the position of women in modern society. And the rector's wife says at one point, um, I want to say to God, I am another boat. I'm not just an appendage to the rector. And this really, really hit home with everybody. It was suddenly, it was absolutely right for the moment. And it was in the bestseller list. It was at number one for about nearly a year in 19... 19- and that is a long time. It's a very long time, yes. It was It was quite extraordinary. So then after that, you were off
0: to the races?
1: Well, yes, I was suddenly <laughs> <I was definitely, laughs> um i was kind of established then mm-hmm. i had i think i had 3 books in the top 10 or something for most of that year it was an extraordinary year wow but, um it was kind of simpler to establish yourself then
0: i can imagine now that publishing is a very very different beast to what it was in the 80s and 90s it's
1: a transformed beast it's so almost
0: unrecognizable so with bookshelfy we we're going around asking uh famous women like yourself about the kind of books that have influenced them um they've picked a whole huge range of stuff um we've had everything from the moomins uh to oh, right. to much much weightier books of literature not that the moomins isn't a weighty book of literature but it's very different um so you sent through a list of the books that you would love to talk about um Our first book that Joanna's picked is The Tailor of Gloucester by Beatrix Potter. Is this the original book that you read?
1: It is the original book. I mean, I read it all my childhood. It was, it's got everything in it. You know, it's got magic, animals, um, winter, Christmas, glamour in in the form of the mayor of Gloucester. It's got absolutely everything everything in it and it's it's an extraordinary story and of course the thing is that beatrix potter didn't just write it she illustrated it she was a really really good watercolourist and so she not only wrote the book but she actually illustrated it too it was quite extraordinary so how old were you when you read this book for the first time well i think anybody of my generation learnt to read terribly early um we were all reading really competently by the time we were 5 because you have to remember that we were we grew up anybody born during the second world war grew up pre-screen so books were all the work there was and it was deemed extremely immoral to um read a novel before lunch you could read a work of non-fiction, but not a novel, which was supposed to be a very light thing and um, rather frivolous.
0: I have never heard that before.
1: <laughs> an extraordinary thing,
0: yes, it is. And what about <laughs> if you were a chi- If you were a child, so would you only read, you know, fun books like *Beatrix Potter* in the evenings when you're out of school? Or would you be reading these books in school as well?
1: There, were no, there was no children's literature. We just read the books that our mothers and our grandmothers had read. So I grew up reading E. Nisbet and and um, Francis Hodgson Burnett and so on. And I should think lots of people would say the same because part of the war effort in the Second World War was to um, send all the books you got for salvage, because it was all supposed to help the war effort. So there were no books. And the the children's book market that has exploded now, and quite rightly, is an extraordinary thing. You know, it's a phenomenon that probably started, I should think it started at the turn of the century. You know? So I'm assuming you don't
0: you don't quite remember World War 2 but do you remember the period after it and what it was like to grow up then?
1: Yes. I mean this this particular lockdown or or you know all these restrictions are very familiar to me because I should think I still remember a ration book. I think ration books went on till about 1952, 1953 and the war ended in 1945. I, I i mean, the first 10 years of my life were all Russian books.
0: Did you feel like it was a particularly deprived moment or was it just because no, you didn't know any no, different?
1: No, didn't know any different. No, it was fine. No, it was absolutely fine. But so growing up in the UK then,
0: you know, were you always a big reader? Um, did you write as a child at all or was that no, not encouraged no, in children?
1: No, no, everybody wrote. And I think uh, the moment you wanted to explain yourself to anybody, you you wrote it down. And you wrote a lot of things um, privately, particularly poetry, (laughs) Um, very, very understandably in my case, because it was all so bad and it was very histrionic. But, you know, we the printed word meant an enormous amount. So you read a great deal. uh, You memorised a great deal, particularly poetry.
0: So moving on to, you know, growing up in Gloucestershire, what was your family like? I assume, you know, if it was after World War II, there must have been quite a lot of families who were in the same kind of situation of having to cope with rationing and things like that.
1: Oh, very much so. Um, I didn't meet my father till I was almost four because he'd gone out to India. Having begotten me, he went out to India and he didn't come back till 47 when i was almost 4 and so my brother and sister were born after the war and i think you you know as as with all children you just accept what how life is really you know you you just you just do that and i'm not alone in feeling like that i think lots of people didn't really know their fathers and i would say too that i those formative years at the beginning i mean he was a perfectly nice man but i never (laughs) really got to know him awfully well and people don't know their fathers now for completely other and much
0: sadder reasons would you say that that's quite common of people from your generation, that they don't really know their fathers particularly yes, well?
1: Very much so. And I think also we we spoke much more formally to our parents then. Right. Um, we, and I think we always did. You know, it was parents really, especially fathers, had nothing to do with the upbringing of their children. It's mm-hmm. which is an extraordinary thing to think of now. because. You know that generation. I mean, my generation of men um, are proud of the fact that they have had nothing to do with childcare. They're proud, yes, almost proud, because because society didn't let them. You know, the cultural norms didn't let them. Mm. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. And you think now, a young man can say he desperately wants a baby without society coming down on him like a ton of bricks. And Mm. it does. And it's quite right. It's interesting that your latest
0: book, Mum and Dad, is about that generation of parents, isn't it? Um, Where you have to take care of your grandparents and you're sort of like the sandwich generation between children who are used to more, I guess, involved parents and then Stuck in between that and your actual parents who were very much distant.
1: Yes, exactly. And often there's a, a tremendous bond between the grandparents and and Gus and Monica in Mum and Dad are um in their seventies, so they're of a of a kind of wartime generation. And they get on far better with the grandchildren than they they do with the children. It is the cliche is that um those two generations have got a common enemy in the <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I know it's an extraordinary
0: thing. <laughs> Do you have grandchildren well, yourself? Oh, yes, I've got nine. Oh, They're wow.
1: Wonderful, yes.
0: So tell me a little bit about the second book that you read on this list The Diaries of Virginia Woolf, written, of course, by Virginia Woolf between 1915 and 1941. I, I would love to say
1: that I think she was um, a remarkable and games-changing novelist. I can't read the novels personally. Really? I think think she was absolutely, she was breaking the mould kind of novelist. But the diaries, I think, are absolutely fascinating. And she kept them from 1915, so just really the the Great War, um, second year of the Great War, till um, she committed suicide, till the early 1940s. And they are extraordinary because they're... She was enormously um, groundbreaking as a writer and I think as a woman too, if you think about it. She had a very, very neurotic, possessive father. She always said she had been... um, raped by one of her half-brothers as a teenager. She adored her sister, the painter Vanessa Bell. Um, And she she was terribly interested in clothes as well. She always looked marvellously elegant. She was mentally, I think, she was very, very fragile indeed. She was extremely worried about what she called the black dog, you know, that the, the madness came on her in a sort of absolutely unstoppable way. Mm. And um, that was why she committed suicide in the end. But these diaries are quite, quite extraordinary. And to think she actually wrote them by hand, and she would have done. She'd have written them with a with a quill pen or a fountain pen in a series of diaries, on paper, in a series of books, with ink. She, you know, it's, it's the way everybody wrote everything.
0: It's extraordinary. And when did you encounter the diaries in your life? How
1: old were you then? I think they were always around, because I remember um, when I went up to university in 1962, I know it's a hundred years ago. Um, I was very conscious of how remarkable she was even then as, as a groundbreaking woman who was really not afraid to talk about her mental frailty. I mean, I know it's dis- it's rightly discussed a great deal now, but rather as if it had been just newly invented, <laughs> but it, it never, ever was. And I think she was very, very bold and brave about being of coming clean about it.
0: So I know you went to Oxford because you won a scholarship. So I'm guessing around the time of the 60s, that must have been the first few decades where women were allowed to go to Oxford. They and were. be part of the colleges.
1: We were. Um, when I went up to Oxford in 1962, there was one woman for every seven men it does quite extraordinary now and a lot of the men were really really thick <laughs> you know they, they they because they were good oarsmen or something they, mm-hmm. they got a place right or they, were yeah. good, they were good sportsmen or something of that kind
0: this podcast is made in partnership with bailey's irish cream Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments, and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream, or paired with your favourite book. So, your third book, uh, Joanna, that you picked was Testament of Friendship by Vera Britton.
1: Yes. Now, this is the one, uh, this is the actual copy I was given by my very best friend at university at Oxford, who was called Jill Herbert-Jones. And she gave me this book as a, well, I suppose it was a testament of friendship, because we meant so much to each other. And we really did. And there was an, it's got an extraordinary introduction, which Vera Brittain writes, about the fact that um, in the past, you know, if if you're thinking of, you know, Homer and the the great classical heroes of the past, that male friendship is always very celebrated, but female friendship is denigrated. Mm -hmm. And this was a a book about Vera Brittain's best friend, who was called Winifred Holtby, who was a novelist who really, who died very young. And who'd written South Riding, which is a novel set in Yorkshire. And it's excellent. It's it's a really good book. And it's still got, you can see inside, it's still got the letter that Jill wrote me. Oh, well, about, that's lovely. Yes, about the importance of friendship. She terribly sadly died of cancer when she was 49. Oh God, that's it was so very, young. very long time ago. And I'm really sorry her, to hear I miss that. Miss her all the time. You know, she she was she was a kind of soulmate. She was like really having a sister. You know, if you could choose a sister rather than um, be awarded a sister or right have a or be a, stuck a, with one. Yes, exactly, exactly. And it what? It's, it's a remarkable book because it's really. Um, a book about, well, it's really a description of what these female relationships are like, and it's terribly important, and it's extremely significant for now, when women's friendships are so crucially important, and they are, for the right reason. I imagine it must have been
0: amazing to have a friend... Uh, a best friend like that when you were at Oxford, surrounded by what were you saying um earlier like one in one woman for every seven men
1: yes, exactly exactly exactly, and I remember going with Jill to the careers officer who um was in who lived in St Giles operated in St Giles, and she was um she wore a droopy cardigan and all of that, and she said. Well, you can do a great many things, she said. You can teach, or you can nurse, or you can sit the civil service exams. You know, be proud (laughs) of that. And And that was it. surrounded by all these stupid men who were going straight into the city and earning a fortune. It was really annoying. I can't
0: imagine what somewhere like Oxford must have been like when you talk about... I mean, even now Oxford gets criticised for being elitist, but I imagine it was so much worse when there were so many
1: so many more men than women around. Well, I, it was elitist, but um, the women's colleges, because I, I was state educated. I was at one of the old grammar schools. And um, this, there were several women's colleges, St. Hilda's, St. Hugh's, which specialised in being open to state school girls. So I applied there and I got a scholarship invisible to the naked eye. It was so small. Mm-hmm. But I remember Lady Margaret Hall was deemed very grand and Somerville very clever. And St Anne's was, um, it had just emerged from being home students only. So, you know, just people who lived in Oxford. It was extraordinary. But my one of my aunts had been at um, St. Hugh's before I was there and she had had to put on a hat every time she went to post a letter and if she had a man to tease, she had to push her bed out into the corridor. So, right. yes, we, I know, it, 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 of course it's extraordinary, but it was only a generation less that I was living through, and look at, you know, two generations on, look look at your horror at that sort of antiquated, mm-hmm. old-fashioned behaviour. So I'm guessing the swinging
0: 60s didn't quite make it to Oxford.
1: Well, I don't know quite where the swinging 60s happened. I, I think it was really that... Um, what, what the 60s did was, you know, it was the bohemian group, the, the if you like to say, the, the sort of grand Bloomsbury group, which had been, um, they'd all got private money, you know. But their um, carelessness with morality, if you like, had filtered down. And that's really what affected the swinging 60s so it probably took most of a century to filter down but it it did and so everybody was then you know there was a kind of sexual free-for-all not I have to say that it really impinged very much on any of us now I wish it had (laughs) more fun (laughs) yes I think more fun and more relaxed And, of course, there were, were, you know, there were all kinds of sort of hideous stigmas, social stigmas around. Like, you know, for example, um, a a woman was deemed entirely responsible if she'd had a baby out of wedlock. I mean, for Mm. sake, how, how dare anybody and how dare society think that that's that a woman's to be blamed for that?
0: What about a man? Were you always kind of the radical in the corner, saying, you know, well, it's not, you know, the man has to take up the his share of the work and take up his share of the responsibility? Because I assume those attitudes must have been quite rare. They were when you were younger. That
1: that was that was why I think I'm a a very old fashioned feminist. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm I was in on the ground floor. I I wore out. um, I think I had three paperback copies of Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook which I've just tried rereading, and it's almost illegible now. It's awful, and it's so (laughs) dated and stuck in its ways and all of that. But I, I adored it at the time because I felt that, well, I just felt the terrible injustice of
0: women's positions. So for those of our listeners who don't know what Doris Lessing's book is about, do you mind giving a kind of potted summary? Of course, the the
1: Golden Notebook was really um, a description of what it was like to be a liberated young woman in the world of the 1960s, uh, when um, you were supposed to be able to please yourself, but actually society hadn't quite caught up with it. So there were all kinds of strictures and... um, Barriers and so on that you kept on crashing into, and of course, um, you know, it was it was lovely for men who I'm I'm very keen on as a gender. I mean, it's it's not their faults, you know, that it's it's been the way it has, but obviously, their way of life suited them extremely well. And why why wouldn't you take advantage of having? having life on your side, really. Because I I know for almost anybody of my generation, we we were born knowing that we were the second sex. And I don't think modern girls quite rightly feel like that at
0: all. No, I don't think we do. I think we just immediately, instinctively kick against that idea. Precisely. Well, quite right too, and not before time.
1: So, when you left Oxford, what did you end up doing afterwards? I, I did qualify as a teacher because, in those days, you could, if you got a reasonable degree from Oxford or Cambridge or London. It is it is really shocking to look back on. But I, it was the case, and you were overseen by an inspector from the the Department of Education and you were also overseen by your head of department and by your head mistress in my case you could go and practice teaching so i did because i terribly much wanted babies i worked in a furtive little department of the foreign office which has now been disbanded i think again quite right too i did that for a couple of years and then i learnt to teach because i was um going to have a baby? Because, you know, I, that was very much what I wanted to do. But I remember my my um, late mother saying, um, you know, when was I going to have a baby? I suppose I was about 24 at the time. So I had a baby when I was 25 and another when I was 27. Um but I think everybody did you know you got married when you were twenty one twenty two some people got married when they were younger than that much younger than that and i'm I know that it's physically quite a good idea to have a baby fairly young, but um it's not very good for you psychologically. <laughs> I think that probably explains
0: why more people put it off. Yes, exactly. So when did you fit in all this writing and
1: novels around your children? Well, um, my husband, my then husband, my first husband, was travelling enormously then. He was um, working for one of these merchant banks, you know, and it was constantly on a plane. So he was never there. And so I would put the children to bed and then I would write. Did you always have the sense that you're going to be a writer, or
0: did the urge come to you only when you had children?
1: No, I don't think it did. I think it was always there. And it was a feeling, a very strong feeling, which I very much adhere to now, which is I don't think writers are prophets. They're not, as Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, you know, they're not philosophers who are showing the way to the world, I think my view is that writers are simply interpreters and translators. Because there's nothing, really, if you think about it, there's nothing to say about the human condition that Shakespeare or Sophocles hasn't said already. But you, all we can do, and all a writer can do, is to reinterpret those old truths for their own times so that you can hold up a mirror to the times you're living in now and just say, you know, this is what it feels like now. And if you think of the world I grew up in is socially so different from the world of today. And that's just, you know, a a very small reflection of how
0: it is. So I think that brings us to our fourth book, which is The Towers of Trebizond by Rose Macaulay, which is, again, a description of a very specific time and place. It is.
1: Um, this, is um, this is an extraordinary book. It's, um, it's a Folio Society edition, for which I wrote an introduction some time ago. And I would say that this book has, this novel has got everything in it, that you could possibly wish for. It's a love story. It's a travel book. It's got polemic in it. It's, it's got the position of women. It's very much argued in it. The position of the church is very much argued in it. Um, it's funny. It's wildly funny. It's very romantically hopeful about the future. Um, it's very lyrically written. It's It's got... Absolutely everything in it. And Rose Macaulay herself was a literary lioness. I mean, this book was first published, I suppose, about 1954. I didn't read it then. I didn't read it till about 20 years later, I should think. But it's, it's an extraordinary example of everything in a particular novel. It's a it's a wonderful book, and it's an example of um, writing kind of honestly about yourself. Because uh, Rose Macaulay always wrote. She said she discovered quite early on, when she was only a child, she discovered. Something in herself called this, which she called this queer inner life, and of course we've all got one, haven't we? We've all got a life we lead privately. We've we've all got a kind of narrative that goes on, uh, accompanying whatever we're doing in real life. And this particular novel, The Towers of Trebizond, is about exactly that. It's it's. Uh, the heroine um who's the i in the the first person narrative narrator of the of the novel she's really investigating everything about herself as a person it's a wonderful book it was published in 54 mm-hmm. yes and she she was she was a literary lioness in her day it just shows how because nobody ever reads her now I don't think, um, but you know, this this particular novel has got everything in it, and it's it's a tremendous. Um, it it should be a feminist bible because it's got an enormous mind in it about the polemic of female equality. How did you come across it? I can't remember. I think I think it must have been. It was just kicking around. Um, I think my parents had. Um, there was something just after the war, printed on very bad paper, called the Reprint Society. And the the books were bound in um, primary colours, all very different, and on terrible paper. And I think the Towers of Trebizond must have been one of those. And my parents belonged to the Reprint Society. And I imagine um, I read everything... That came my way. Everything that the Reprint Society produced, and I think this was was one of them. It's an interesting book because I've heard you speak about it before,
0: and it's essentially a travel log masquerading as something else. Well, it's something else
1: masquerading as a travel
0: log. It's about you know
1: yes, quality. Cert- certainly, travel comes into it very much so. But it's um, it's also it's got a most wonderful passage at the end about about hope. Um, And I I know Rose Macaulay says in it, you know, we will never have this life again, that being alive is worth so much. And don't don't squander it. You know, don't um, diminish your capacity to relish just being a human being who's alive. So when you read it, you must have already started to write novels. I probably did well. I wrote my first novel um, when I was fourteen, and I was still at school. And I, I nobody's ever seen it because I think, you know, the children can all fall about with mirth about it <laughs> um, when well, I'm safely dead. But not, not before because I was very tall. I grew to this height. I'm, I was five foot nine. Wow! I I know. Really, quite tall, and I grew to that height when I was 12. I'm probably shorter now. And I had frizzy hair, I had braces on my teeth, I had pebble lenses, spectacles. There was nothing to um, recommend me, really. And um, I wrote a novel about the kind of teenager I wished I was instead of the one I actually was. Right, so glamorous and... Well, you know, looking rather like Jane Fonda used to look. Right, yeah. You know, (laughs) with a a tiny waist and um, pink and white gingham skirts over an enormous tulle petticoat. And and it's very, very popular with all the sports jocks of the school, you know. What was the name of
0: your fictional self?
1: I can't remember. I think I probably wrote it in the first person, and that's what that's what the insta poets are doing now is is writing out their feelings in poetry.
0: That's true. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about you know the rector's wife and you know when you really came into your own as a novelist. Do you kind of feel like you're still on this journey now as an author?
1: Always. Always. Um, I I mean, for example, The Rector's Wife, I wouldn't write it the way I wrote it in 1991 now. I wouldn't write it in the same way at all. I'd make the rector and his wife slog through a long, dreary divorce now. If I I was rewriting it now, I wouldn't have the sort of... Ease, well, it's a bit of an ease, really, of the rector killing himself under a bus, you know, inadvertently. That was a a kind of cop out, but it seemed perfectly fine then. But there's a lot of things I would do differently now. But I would never really leave a novel without hope. I think that's really incredibly important. But I think, on the other hand, I would never I'd never tie a novel up with a kind of a happy ever after mm-hmm. because they don't happen in real life do they mm. and I'm very keen on echoing reality that's why I was so confused when I read interviews with you
0: and people have brought up this criticism of your work as aga sagas because that to me implies that everything has a happy ending you can imagine the gender of the person
1: who invented right. that term. Of course, <laughs> yes, I just be guessing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, they, they're quite subversive. My novels and they're they are sections of their their reflections of reality. Let's say that, and they they wanted to dismiss them as being um, sort of cozy and second rate and you know entirely domestic and virginia wolf said once that it was a grave mistake to believe there was greater significance in great things than there was in small things mm-hmm. because small things are really um a symbol of exactly uh not just domestic life but how we work out how we're going to live our lives i think that's very true and very wise mm. So the fifth and final book for Bookshelfie is a book called Period Piece. Yes, it was written by a woman called Gwen Raverett, illustrated by her own woodcuts. And she was Darwin's granddaughter. The Charles Um, Darwin. Yes, the Charles Darwin. And it's really a recollection of growing up in Cambridge um, as a child. And it's, it's a very affectionate piece, a sort of recollection, a memoir of her childhood in this extremely clever, rather wayward, random family. And it's, it's full of jokes too. It's like the Towers of Trebizond. It's really very funny. And there's one of her uncles, her Darwin uncles once, who um, used to toddle off to the sideboard for his early evening snifter. And he would always say to himself, dear old gin. And there's something very sort of sweet about that and and affectionate and, you know, it should be allowed. And That kind of gentle, teasing humour is rather missing from life now, I find. Do you try and incorporate that sense of lightness into your own books? they are quite funny yes they are funny and i always see them as if we are the readers and i are joining a train at some point on its journey and the characters will all be on board already and we will follow them for part of the journey and so is the dilemma on board that they're they're facing at the time that's always there and we follow them until they get to some kind of resolution and then we all get off and they go on. But how, is it, how is, are these people and their story going to unravel once, once we've left them? You know, Are they going to be different? I would always leave something for the readers to do because the readers and I are very much on this journey together they're amazing, my readers. They're so loyal. And they've been around for so long. I mean, they've been around for nearly half a century. Have you met quite a few of them as well? Yes, yes. And I'm I'm read by people who are in their teens and I'm read by grandmothers in their 90s. It's lovely. And I'm read also right across the social spectrum. What do you think it is about your work that kind
0: of appeals to that larger variety of people?
1: I think it's that um, I... I'm quite good. I'm not good at many things, but I'm quite good at picking up on the zeitgeist, you know, of what is preoccupying people at the moment. I mean, mum and dad is about the sandwich generation. That is, um, your parents are falling to pieces one end of your life. Your children are very complicated and needy the other end of your life. And you, the woman, are probably working in fact, there are some women who hold down two or three jobs. So you haven't got the time that, you know, might you
0: might have had in the past. Do you feel like you're in that sandwich generation now or you're on the other side of the spectrum? I'm about to be um, the
1: problem, aren't I? <laughs> I,
0: feel <like laughs> I feel like your children might disagree with that. It sounds like a fascinating book. I also feel like, well seems especially relevant, especially now that I've had so many friends my age say, well, what can I do? My parents want to go out and they don't yeah. care about coronavirus.
1: I'm horrified because, you know, the, um, the, with the virus, all the senior virologists at Oxford University are saying we should behave as if we already have the disease. We have the virus. No, I think that's a good way of approaching it.
0: Yeah, it's certainly Actually, it's certainly zeitgeisty. Do you think you end up writing a book about
1: this? No, I shan't because <laughs> that, I think that would be very depressing and so on. I'm 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 started a new book, but <laughs> I haven't got very far yet. Only because I haven't quite felt right about writing it. I just haven't. Well, I haven't got my head in gear into the writing mode. Because I suppose of being at home, and writers are very used to their own company after all, so I'm fine on the isolation. It's just um, until I've got the house settled and mm-hmm. sorted and various work things out of the way, I can't quite relax into it, but I will. I think there's going to be weeks and weeks of this ahead.
0: Well, <laughs> I mean. Given your track record, I'm sure you have no problem producing another few dozen.
1: No, I well, it I'll do it rather more slowly, I think, now. It'll be a book every few years rather than every year. Well, thank you so much, Joanna, for
0: joining us on the podcast.
1: I've loved it. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you hugely for your interviews.
0: I'm Zing Zing, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. You definitely want to head to our website to find out more about the Reading Women Challenge, get exclusive video and audio content, and check out the hashtag #ReadingWomen on Instagram and Twitter to join in the conversation around the 24 brilliant past winners of the Women's Prize for Fiction please click subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It really helps spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.